Thank you so much. Thank you for the invitation. It's a great joy for me to be uh, here this morning. And let me also take this opportunity to say thank you for uh, the support you give to the European Leadership Forum. It means so much to us. Maybe I should also, uh, at this moment, uh, uh, warn you for my somewhat broken English. You know, English is only my fourth language. <laughs> and I have no second and third. <laughs> so, what to do? What to do? The theme for this morning is Jesus and the skeptic. Jesus and the skeptic. And as you heard, I come from Europe and Sweden, up in the north of Europe. And everywhere you travel in Europe, you will see those beautiful churches, some of them being 1,000 years old. And you see the church tower pointing towards heaven, proclaiming there is a God, there is a creator, there is something more than just this world. And on the top of the church tower, there is a cross saying this God who has created everything, he has come down to us. And in his death and resurrection, there is life and hope for us. And you will see this all over Europe. And that has, of course, been the background for the whole Western civilization, the Christian faith, the Christian gospel. But what so shockingly has happened during the last century, and increasingly during the last 50, 60, 70 years, is that our culture has started to divorce the Christian faith. And as you well know, Europe has become a secular continent, and my country, Sweden, is taking the lead in this process of secularization. And if I understand things right, America, who has for a long time been very different, you are unfortunately catching up with some of the processes we have in Europe. How on earth has that happened? How have Europe become such a skeptical culture? Where skepticism is the default position. Well, this is, of course, a long and, and complex story. You could say there is an intellectual dimension to it, that people have started to say, well, the Christian faith is not coherent. If you really use your mind, you cannot believe in the Christian faith any longer. It's not logical or rational or coherent. So there's been intellectual, philosophical criticism. There's been a lot of historical criticism. So people say, well, the stories of the Bible that retells supposedly historical events, you cannot trust those texts. So there's been a strong historical criticism undermining, they claim, the biblical texts. And there's been morally criticism, where people say that, well, Christian morality is limiting the joys of life. And People even claim that God himself is an immoral being. And there's been a lot of institutionally criticism 
against the church as an institution. Okay, so criticism as a, at a number of levels. How on earth should we respond to this? It's obvious that this is a time for Christian apologetics to explain and defend the Christian faith. And we, as Christians, we need to go into the discussion on these different issues. Now, a sermon on a Sunday morning is not the place to do that. But we need to do it in, in other places. We cannot leave this criticism. One of the weaknesses of the churches in Europe has been that we have not responded to this criticism and skepticism has taken over our culture. We need to challenge this skepticism by dealing with the specific objections, but also by focusing on one main thing, namely this. If Jesus was raised from the dead, then Christianity is true. And that will be the subject for this morning. Regardless of all the details of the other objections towards Christianity, if Jesus was raised from the dead, then Christianity is true. And this morning we are going to follow one skeptic we can read about in the New Testament. We often call him Doubting Thomas. I think that's really unfair. Thomas was a hero in the faith. He was one of the twelve. He has given us this wonderful confession to Jesus, my Lord and my God. And he spent his life proclaiming the gospel, taking it all the way to India. So having the label doubting Thomas over his life is so unfair. But... There was a period in his life when he was skeptical, when he was doubting. And today, we will follow his journey from skepticism to conviction and commitment. And we can read about that in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 24 to 29. The text which tells us about how Jesus appears to Thomas. So John chapter 20, verse 24 to 29. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. 
Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Lord, we thank you for your word. And I pray that you will open your word for us and that you will open us, our minds and hearts and wills, for your word. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Three simple questions. Firstly, why was Thomas skeptical? You notice the contrast in the text. The other disciples, filled with joy and enthusiasm, comes rushing to Thomas. We have seen the Lord. And then Thomas responds, unless I myself, personally, will see, will touch, put my hand in the side, I will never believe. What a contrast. What a strange week that must have been. The other disciples, the other friends of Jesus, filled with joy over the resurrection. And Thomas, I will not believe. What was going on? Of course, we have to speculate a, a little bit. In one sense, it's not strange that he was skeptical. You know, generally, if someone, or generally death, is the end of a person's life on planet Earth. People don't generally come back from the dead. So, of course, the general attitude is, of course, a dead person is still dead. But I think here is, here is more to Thomas' skepticism. I think there are a number of wrong ideas. We can see in the New Testament that Thomas, together with the, with the others, had wrong ideas about Jesus' ministry, about the role of the Messiah. They thought that when Messiah would come to Jerusalem, he would defeat the Romans. He would cast out the occupation. He would liberate Jerusalem, liberate Israel politically. But that didn't happen. Jesus was seemingly defeated by the Romans. He did not defeat them. It did not match Thomas's view of Messiah because he had missed some of the lines in the Old Testament about the suffering servant, about a deeper liberation than a political, the liberation from sin and death. So when Thomas sees how Jesus is tortured and crucified and how he dies, it's just impossible for him to believe that Jesus was the Messiah and that there would be a continuation for Jesus. So there were some wrong theological ideas. And I would also say that we can see that there are some wrong ideas philosophically about how we can know things. Did you notice how modern Thomas was in his attitude? He was an empiricist. Only what I can verify directly with my senses will I believe. That sounds like a modern Swede. If I don't see with my eyes, touch with my hands, then I have no reasons to believe. 
And he constructs very specific demands. In order for me to believe, this needs to happen. I need personally be able to put my hand at that specific place on Jesus' body. Otherwise, I will not believe. So he's, put, he's constructing his own demands of how the resurrection should be proved. This is, of course, a very naive way of looking at knowledge and also looking at the human person. We can see that a lot of people in the gospel saw all the miraculous things Jesus did and still did not believe. Because belief is not only a matter of, of facts that you can see, it's also a matter of your own heart, what you do want to be true and how you choose to interpret those facts. And I'm remembered of a, a few years ago, I sat in a very exclusive house in Stockholm with a, a very well-known artist who had invited me to, to discuss the Christian faith. And he did exactly what Thomas did. He had his own agenda, this and this and this. Unless this and this happens, I can never believe in God. And he was stuck in that mentality. So here's an interesting question, I think. Where do we have our biggest problem? Is it in our eyes that have not yet seen? Is it in our hands that have not yet touched? Is it in our minds that have not fully understood everything? Or could it sometimes be that our biggest problems is in our hearts? That we are running in the opposite direction. So, Thomas was stuck in his own misunderstandings. And it blocked him from really looking into the real issue here. He was stuck with... I cannot believe. But Jesus did not leave him in that situation. A week after the first Sunday, he appears, and Thomas is there. Now, this leads to my second question. Why was Thomas given this special treatment? I guess we are a number of people here that have thought, wow. I would like to be in Thomas' situation. Why does Jesus not appear to, to us now in this way? How easy it would be to believe in Jesus if it suddenly stood there and invited me to touch. Why is Jesus not given that to us? But he gives it to Thomas. Seems like uh, unfair. Why is this individual given this special treatment and the rest of us? Well... We are not given that. Is this possible to understand? Yeah, I think so. There's a clue in the text. If you notice how the text began, Thomas, one of the twelve. That is a very important point. Thomas was one in this specially selected group 
that had a special role in God's strategy. God's strategy was from the beginning, not that Jesus should appear to everyone on planet Earth, but that, that Jesus should appear, the resurrected Jesus, for a group of witnesses that then should testify to the resurrection. So Jesus appeared to individuals, to small groups, to larger groups, and also to a huge group of over 500 uh, persons at the same time. And he gave that group undeniable evidences for the resurrection, undeniable experiences that God has raised Jesus from the dead. And Thomas was part of that selected group. Not only the 500, but the really key group of the apostles. And therefore, he was given a special treatment because he was in that group who would then testify for the rest of humanity what God had done. Notice something, this is a little bit aside, but, but still, notice how specific Thomas is identified. Thomas, and then we are given his nickname, who was also called Didymus, because he was a twin, who was one of the twelve, so you have three identifications. Thomas, that Thomas who is called Didymus, who was part of the twelve. If you study the resurrection text, you would see that so many people are named. Mary, Mary Magdalene, Mary who was uh, married to or was the mother to this or that, Johanna and Salome and Cleopas. Why, do we give, or why are we given those specific names? It's because they were the public witnesses. And you could send investigate journalists during the first century and look them up to hear their testimony. That's why we have their name. They are not anonymous. They are not faceless, someone saw Jesus. No, it was that person and that person and that person. And they were identified. So people could check it out. And Thomas is one of those persons that people in the first century could search up. And BBC or CNN or Fox News could make an interview. Tell us what happened after the crucifixion of Jesus. Notice that in the book of Acts, this perspective of a selected group is underlined when it comes to the resurrection. In Acts chapter 10, Peter is saying, God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify to this. So that's God's strategy. Overwhelming evidence for a small group, or actually a rather large group, over 500, and then they testify. In the first chapter of the book of Acts, Luke is telling us something about what kind of evidence this group were giving. After his suffering, he presented himself, Jesus presented himself to them, 
the apostles, and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. This is amazing. During a period of six weeks, Jesus appeared to this selected group, not in visions, not in dreams, but in this physical reality. They saw him, they heard him, they spoke to him, they had theological discussions with him, they touched him, they ate with him. It was not in here, it was not in here, it was out here. Luke 24 tells us how they are giving a grilled fish to Jesus and he takes it and he eats it. And in John 21, Jesus has prepared a warm breakfast. He has grilled fish and he gives to the disciples. And they became greasy on their fingers and they have the taste of fish in their mouth. This was real. He was there. Of course, he was glorified. He was transformed. There was new things added. He could come and go in our space-time dimension that we cannot. But he was still really, really there. I've realized that a lot of people think about how Jesus appeared to Paul, which is a very dramatic and fantastic story, and it's told three times in the book of Acts. But a lot of people think of that as the kind of pattern. We shouldn't. That is wrong. What happened outside Damascus was a vision of the risen Lord. That is how Paul himself talks about it in Acts 26. This heavenly vision. And the other people who were with Paul, they didn't see Jesus. They saw a light. They heard a sound, but they didn't see Jesus because that was a vision. Because that was after the ascension when Jesus was taken away from our time-space dimension into the spiritual realm. He's on the Father's right side. But during those 40 days, he was here. So we shouldn't confuse that. Notice I'm not trying to minimize what happened to Paul. That's wonderful. <laughs> it's additional evidence for the, the resurrection. And it, it affected the whole world history that Paul was converted. But the character of that appearance was different from the other appearances. Now, skeptical people would object here saying, why has God chosen such a bad strategy? of appearing for a number of people, not for all. What to say about that? Well, let's do some thinking. Is it strange that important knowledge reaches us through the testimony from others? If you start to think about it, it's not at all strange. The majority of your knowledge is knowledge from testimony. You know so many things that you yourself have not experienced, but you've heard it from someone. It's absolutely foundational for human knowledge. Uh, testimony. That is the normal way of knowing. 
someone tells you, gives you information. But then the skeptic says, okay, maybe, maybe, but, but why not more witnesses? Why so few? Come on, 500 is not few. That's a really large group. And it will not become a stronger testimony if you have 501. In court, if you just have one witness, then of course it's much stronger if you have two or if you have three. But then it starts to fade out. How much stronger is it if you have five or you have 10 or you have 12? Let's say you have 500 witnesses. How much stronger is it if you have 510? It's not stronger because you already have the case completed long before you have 500. So God wouldn't win anything, so to speak, to appear to more people. Jesus already appeared to more than enough. Okay. But, says the skeptics, why didn't he appear to critics and to skeptics? Why to his disciples? Well, the response to that is, he did, he did only appear to skeptical and critical people. No one believed in the resurrection on beforehand. The women came to the tomb in order to fulfill the, uh, the bereavement. They were there to anoint a dead body. There's why they brought all this perfume with them. They did not expect God to have raised Jesus. Peter and John and the apostles, when they heard from the women, the, the, the tomb is empty. It says they did not believe them. They thought it was nonsense. And we have just read a text about the person who was really a skeptic, Thomas. And I mentioned Paul, who was an enemy, the fiercest critic of Christianity you can ever imagine. So Jesus appeared to skeptics and critics. So, why didn't everybody believe? And why does not Jesus continue to appear in this physical way for people? I think one key thing is what I've already mentioned. This is not only about facts. You remember maybe in uh, Luke 16, where Jesus have, is, is telling a, a, a parable or a story. And in the story, it is that... If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. So this, this fact of the resurrection must be put into a wider context. So I asked the question, why was Thomas treated in this unique way? Because it was necessary for him as an apostle. It was actually not necessary for him as a disciple. Like, it's not necessary for you and me and for someone today to become 
a Christian that they had a physical encounter with Jesus in that way. Because we have reason out from the testimony of those who already had, uh, have met uh, Jesus, the, the apostles, to believe in the resurrection. A third question. So why did Thomas believe? So why, how could he go from being a skeptic, a doubter, to become this believer, this convinced person, this person with such a commitment that he gave the rest of his life to spreading the gospel. Why did Thomas believe? Well, the obvious answer is, of course, Jesus appeared to him. <laughs> That's why he, he believed. But notice something interesting here. Do you remember the demands Thomas had from the beginning? If I don't be able to touch him, to put my hands on his body, to put my hands in the side, I will not believe. And then Jesus appeared, and what happens? Thomas does not touch Jesus. He does not touch Jesus. Because that was not really what was needed. Suddenly, something must have dawned on Thomas. Because when Jesus invites him and saying, Here, put your hand in my side. It dawned on Thomas that Jesus had silently, invisibly, and lovingly been with him in all his doubts. Jesus is quoting Thomas in his doubts. Jesus had actually been with Thomas during this week of doubts and struggle and uncertainties. And Thomas falls on his knees saying, my Lord, and my God, one of the highest confessions to Jesus in the whole New Testament. When Thomas had made his confession, Jesus says something which is surprising. He says, it, and it sounds like a, a critique of Thomas. Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So it, it seems like Jesus is criticizing Thomas's longing for evidence. And there's a long tradition in the Christian church where this verse has been taken out of, of the context and been used as an argument for we shouldn't use any arguments. Look, it's better to believe without evidence. Blind faith is kind of more spiritual, have a higher spiritual quality, is more valued by God, and a faith that uh, comes out of evidences. So we have this long existential interpretation of the Christian faith. 
But that is not the reasonable interpretation of what Jesus is saying here, for a number of reasons. He's not demanding any of his apostles to believe without evidences. He shows up to them and gives them evidences for the resurrection. No one believed in the resurrection without evidence, if you study the gospel. They believed because the tomb was empty and Jesus appeared to them. And that caused their belief in the resurrection. It was actually built on, on evidences. So it's very strange that Jesus would criticize Thomas for something that he gave to all the other apostles and then also gave to Thomas. So the point here is not that Jesus wants to underline kind of blind faith. Not at all. And you know, if you just read the next verses in this chapter, it says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the text continues about talking about all the evidences that was given for Jesus being the Son of God as a cause for or a reason for us to believe. So this is not about blind belief. So what's the point of this? There is actually a critique against Thomas. And the critique is this. Already after the first Sunday, the day of the resurrection, there were enough evidences for Thomas to believe in the resurrection without seeing Jesus. Why? What were the evidences after just the first Sunday? Well, the evidence was that all the other apostles and a number of other people had met Jesus. So, people that Thomas had really good reasons to trust testified unanimously that Jesus had appeared for them in a real way and that God had raised him. And that was a testimony said in the context of Thomas being a follower of Jesus for three years and seeing all the miraculous signs, how God confirmed that Jesus is his son. And that was in the context of the Old Testament and all the prophecies of what God one day would do. And they could see it, it happened around Jesus. So already there were reasons enough for Thomas that he should have believed without seeing. Now, Jesus, in his mercy, gave Thomas what he asked for, which means that for us today, there are, of course, much, much more evidence than there were the first Sunday. We have the appearance for Thomas. We have the appearance of the 500. We have the appearance for Paul. We have the appearance for the two, Cleopas and the other, walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And so for us, this is the word. Blessed are those who believed without seeing. Not because that belief is blind. It's built upon solid historical evidences. But you are blessed when you uh, 
receive that testimony and believe that. So, let me end just by an invitation to the skeptic. I said, if God raised Jesus from the dead, then Christianity is true. Therefore, this must always be the central point of inquiry. If you want to study the Christian faith, this is the key point. Of course, there are many other points, but this is the key point. If this is true, then Christianity is true. And you should commit your life to Christ. Therefore, make an inquiry into the resurrection. In order to do that, you should listen to the apostles' testimony like you listen to other testimonies. And you know that so much of your knowledge is built upon testimony. Historical testimony and contemporary testimony. Testimonies from people you know personally and testimonies from people you have never met, but you still trust what they are telling you. Listen to the apostle testimony, the testimonies for that selected group that Jesus appeared for in this convincing way, not in a spiritual, emotional, psychological way, at least not only, but also in a physical, empirical way. Listen to the apostles' testimony. Study the historical sources. Secondly, lay aside your homemade demands on what kind of proof you must have. That is a very unscientific approach that on beforehand decide what the proof should look like. You need with an open mind look into reality like scientists do to see are there any kind of evidences or proofs. So put aside what Thomas started with. If this, if not this, then I will never believe. Look into it with an open mind. And thirdly, continue to seek for Jesus. But know that more important than your seeking for Jesus is that Jesus is seeking for you. That is the gospel message. So continue to seek. But know someone bigger than you is searching for you. And he wants to meet your deepest need in life. And we have some hints of that in this chapter in John. It starts with Mary crying outside the tomb. And Jesus comes and comforts her. Jesus wants to meet us in our sorrows. The disciples were in a room with locked doors filled with fear. And Jesus comes and says, peace with you. Jesus wants to meet our fear and give us his peace. And Thomas is separated from the others because of his doubt. And he's bitter and pessimistic. And Jesus comes to him and changes his doubt into conviction and hope and faith for the future.
Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we come before you in, in wonder. We thank you for the resurrection, the victory, the future that is in, in your resurrection from the dead. And we pray that you will, uh, that you will uh, challenge us in our life, that you will change our unbelief and our skepticism and our doubts into faith and conviction. Lord, you, you see what, what's the needs in our lives uh, at this very moment. I thank you that you have all the riches to meet all our different needs. I thank you, and I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.